I'm going to invite Catherine up. Catherine's going to continue our series in Mark's Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 7 today. You might want to get ahead of the game, start getting Mark 7 out. Um, and uh, I'm going to pray for Catherine as she comes to preach to us. Heavenly Father, thank you for Catherine. Um, thank you for her words to us even at the last service. I pray that you give her fresh um, energy for that. And thank you for just seeing how much this word has spoken to her and challenged her. And I pray, Lord, for her as she comes to preach for us, as we receive, that you give us open hearts and minds to hear what it is that you have to say to us today. And would you give us also the grace to allow it to penetrate deep enough that it might change something beyond this Sunday morning. Amen. Amen. Thank you. It's a great joy to be here. And uh, looking forward to getting stuck into this next section of uh, Mark with you. We are, as as, um, Michael said, we're looking at Mark 7. So open your Bibles or switch them on and uh, we will read from this passage, starting at verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared, all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she'd heard about him, A woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia, and she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told them, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he told her, For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Isn't that fantastic? Who on first hearing of that thinks, that seems a bit out of character. Jesus doesn't normally call people dogs. That's a bit rude. Who who heard that and was just a little bit, "Mm, doesn't sit right. That's not who I know Jesus to be yet. That's okay. We're going to hopefully unpack that and uh, look into why he uses that phrase later on. What links the two stories of the disciples and the Jews totally not getting it and this Phoenician, this Gentile, non-Jewish woman receiving this blessing? And this morning we're looking at nothing to gain and everything to give, nothing to give and everything to gain. What is it that qualifies us? What is it that makes us good enough? What is it that we're trying to do to prove ourselves in so many different ways? Have we made the cut? Are we good enough? 
Perhaps there's a question every generation has asked, really. Uh, a few years ago, David and I had a summer where we went to about 11, 11 weddings in the space of February and October one year. It was absolutely bonkers. We were absolute pros. We, like, we, were, just, we were down, down with the wedding uh, schedule. We just knew what we were doing. Went to this one uh, wedding of a friend, John and Sue, down in Kent. And we went uh, anticipating catching up with lots of friends. It was a great day. The wedding was spectacular, and we were outside the church waiting for the bride and groom to come to throw confetti to watch them get into the vintage car. And uh, as we were mingling in the sunshine, uh, an usher rushes up to me and my group of friends and says, where are the Sticklands? Who are the Sticklands? Have you seen the Sticklands? And we were like, yeah, that's us. What's, What's going on? I thought we might have parked somewhere in the wrong place or something. Anyway, turns out great aunt Maureen and great uncle Peter weren't at the service. And as evening guests, we were first on the list for the bride and groom to be promoted, to sit down lunch guests. And so we were like, get in, because we were only going to have like a pub lunch with other friends who were evening people. So we had definitely received a promotion. Anyway, we wave the bride and groom off and we follow in our car to this very smart golf, uh, golf club. And uh, we enjoy canapes and other friends who were sort of qualified sit down guests said, Catherine, David, we didn't know you were going to be here for lunch. And we were like, I know, <laughs> we've been promoted. That's okay. Anyway, we enjoy the canapes and a glass of champagne and we're enjoying the setting and the photographer's there, all chit, chat, chat, chat. And then um, the, um, Sue's dad, so the father of the bride, comes rushing up looking absolutely panic-stricken. Guess what happened? Great-aunt Maureen and great-uncle Peter had arrived. And there was no room for the extra two to take the spaces. So from a place of being honoured and respected and sort of lifted up, we then had to make quite a hasty getaway because the master of ceremonies was just about to ding his bell to accept, you know, to have everyone um, go and find their seats. So we were, he was mortified. We were a bit put out. Uh, and then we had to spend the next 45 minutes driving around crazy lanes in Kent countryside trying to find a pub that was still serving food at sort of 10 past four on a Saturday afternoon. Absolutely ravenous. Have you ever had something where you've been so close <laughs> but you've missed out on the sit-down meal where you really wanted that promotion and it's gone to your colleague? Where you really wanted that recognition from a parent and uh, it's just passed away? That you didn't measure up that you didn't quite qualify, uh, maybe because of your background or your education, your family or lack of family. Uh, you failed. You had a failed relationship, a messy past, feeling inadequate as a parent or as a child, fearing that you'll be found out, fearing that you we found out to be a fraud you hide the real you. And these feelings of being discontent and a restlessness, uh, these lie at the very heart of the passage that we're looking at this morning. How can we get out of this mess? Jesus talks to the Jews. He's been in the market uh, with his disciples, and from having come from the market, having bought the food, the Jews who are following Jesus observe, wait a, wait a minute, wait a minute. The uncleanliness that you have brought upon yourself from being in the market is still on you because you have not followed the ceremonial hand washing. You have not followed the cleanliness rules. So the Jews like to remind Jesus of the fact that he's not fulfilling the law. I would say it's a bad thing. If you're going to remind the Son of God, the very incarnation of the deity of God, that he's not clean enough, like, do, you, do, do you think the Jews should just have gone, I think we might have missed a trick here. But anyway, they didn't acknowledge who he was. They didn't realize that uh, he was in himself pure. 
The Bible truth uh, that Jesus goes on to explain and walks through with the disciples is this. That you receive, or I receive, the abundant mercy of God only when I stop trying to save myself. I receive the abundant mercy of God only when I stop trying to save myself. But see, the Jews didn't understand it. They were too busy noticing that Jesus and his followers had not followed the rules. Their hands were defiled. Their hands were unclean. Jesus doesn't throw out the Old Testament. He respects the law and upholds it. But what he says is those laws for keeping yourself clean, they were there as a regular reminder to humble yourself and acknowledge your need before a loving and holy God. And the Jews missed that. They were so busy trying to save themselves, they didn't acknowledge they needed the abundant mercy of God. His disciples, too, kind of missed the mark. So later on, um, they, want, they say to Jesus, tell us more about this parable you used of everything that comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, not what goes in. How is it that the, this Ill, illness, this sickness, comes out of the heart of man? Tell us more, Jesus. And he says, why are you so dull? I mean, they spent loads of time with Jesus. You'd hope that they might have cottoned on to some of, some of what Jesus was saying. I love this. In the message, it says... Why are you being willfully stupid? Isn't that good? As in, not, not if you were on the receiving end of that, but why are you being willfully stupid? Why do you not understand what I'm here to achieve? The source of your unfilthiness, the source of your uncleanliness, it's you. <laughs> it's coming from your heart. And I'd like suggest that it's an accurate diagnosis of the human heart that even our own hearts, there's a sickness. We feel unsettled. We have not been all that we should have been. We haven't measured up. We're not enough to please God. There is nothing we can do that is good enough to please God. Please take that as a word of freedom today as well. There's nothing you can do that pleases God. He loves you and he's made the way. But we can get complacent, can't we? We can complace, get complacent and think, well, well, Jesus, I know you said that I'm kind of, there's a sickness, but I'm not so sick. I've got more like a sniffly cold rather than like an incurable disease. So like my sickness isn't so bad because I'm on lots of rotors, actually. And if you look at my church suite profile, um, you'll see actually that um, because I'm on so many profiles uh, and rotors, that kind of mitigates my badness. So Lord, if you can just go back and I'll show you just how well I qualify for being the best Christian in town. And God's like, really? <laughs> How's that working out for you, Catherine? <laughs> David and I met at university, and in uh, my first year, his second year, uh, we were at Bath University, and we would meet on a Sunday afternoon to then go on to our student group in our church. And we would always meet at two o'clock at a particular place, place where he would come from his, um, his digs in one area of the city, and I would come from, uh, from the um, campus. And I'd have to get a bus down. It was always the same time. And uh, it turned out that he's better at timekeeping than me. Who knew? Um, he did. Um, he was always left, left waiting. Week after week, I would keep him waiting. And being the generous, gracious man he is, instead of going, calling me up and being really cross and you late for me again. He did the thing which is actually far worse. <laughs> far, far worse. 
And um, after sort of this is like fifth, sixth week of me holding him up, and I'm, I'm, I'm not talking five minutes here. He reminded me last night when I was we were remembering about it. Apparently, 45 minutes was quite normal. I know, I know, Jan. I know, poor man. He still chose to marry me. Goodness me, there are miracles. Anyway, so instead of railing against me and getting angry, he said, Catherine, I want you to know that when you're late for me, yeah, when you're late for me, it shows that I'm not important to you. Oh! I know, I know, sure, that you don't care enough to make sure you're on time. If you're the one who's early, you can talk about that in your, uh, in your marriage later and I'll give, you, I'll give you that one for free. I become really flippant. I become really careless. Because I thought I was just quite easy. I knew that we had a loving relationship. I was easy in that relationship, but I become careless and flippant and kind of just getting a bit lazy, actually, and not thinking about what was really important. But thankfully, the story does not end there. Jesus uses this story to, uh, this sort of this balance of, of the Jews and his willfully stupid disciples. And then this incredible story of this woman. He has moved and he has traveled from this Jewish region to the region of Tyre. This is a, a border town. Uh, it's, it's Gentile. It's full of Greeks. It's actually where the Canaanites live. Do you remember the Canaanites? They're just an enemy. Like all the way back to Genesis, the Canaanites were the enemies of God. And this woman is part of that line, is part of that culture. She's a Greek, a, Phoenicia, a Syrian Phoenician Greek from that region. And she's a desperate woman absolutely desperate. She's literally on her knees. And he's tired. Maybe he's fed up with his willfully stupid disciples. And he discourages the woman from coming to him at first. Or rather, his disciples say, Lord, send this woman away. That's in the Matthew version. This woman falls at her feet. She wants help. She begs for help, and the disciples say, send her away. She is neither the right gender, the right education. She's not the right race. Her past and her present situation, her current needs, she's not the first pick. She's the wrong place at the wrong time. But her desperate needs do not form a wedge between God's generous mercy towards her that day. And an incredible story that we're going to unpack a little bit more. Let's have a look at this. He replies to her. So she's just come before his presence. And Jesus has a choice. He can either send her away, which would have been totally acceptable in that time and place. you You don't allow a woman into your presence, especially if you're considered to be a rabbi. But he doesn't send her away. He acknowledges her faith and he invites her into this um, showground, into this arena for her having this dialogue, this conversation with him. And he, he says, first, let the children eat all that they want. It's not right for the children's bread, uh, to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Here Jesus is outlining the way, the system, the process of what's happened throughout the Bible. In the very beginning, Jesus made the Israelites, the people of uh, the Jewish people, almost like a case study for his glory, for his blessing, to be an example to the whole world. 
So he used that throughout history, and you know, we know the story. They fell away. He was faithful to them again. So he's, used, he's always used the Jewish people to show his blessing and his mercy to first, and then it's transplanted and translated into the whole world. And that is followed through with Jesus' ministry as well. He first preached to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And similarly, in the early church, Paul's ministry again was to the Jews, and then it spread wide to the Gentiles. So this is a, this is a pattern of how God has been working. So when he calls her a dog, he's actually using a, a diminutive version of it. So it's more like uh, the little dogs or the puppies. And he's acknowledging that there's an order of things. He's acknowledging that she is not the first pick in this sense. He acknowledges that she's not the right fit for receiving anything from him. But, but he gives her the floor. He sort of invites her to then reply to this, and it's absolutely amazing. It would not have been normal for a man to engage a woman in this type of conversation. This almost this repartee, which allows her to express her faith and her need. That would have not been normal. That was limited to men of that culture. So he's doing something incredibly cross-cultural, incredibly um, forward-thinking and just honoring her. She replies, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Ah. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She acknowledges that he's Lord. And in Matthew 15, it goes further and says that she says, Son of David, which is the name meaning that she believed he was the Messiah. Lord, Messiah, I know who you are. You are God incarnate. You are God's messenger for the needs of the world. Even the dogs, I know I'm not, I'm not first pick. I'm not a Jew. I can't even have anything. I don't have any rights to come to you. But even the dogs under, under the table eat the children's crumbs. Isn't that, can you see the beauty of what she's saying? Even a crumb, Lord, even a crumb of your blessing, even a tiny scrap of your glory, even the touch of your hem of your cloak will meet all my needs. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer you, Lord, but I believe that you are Messiah, I believe you are Lord, and I believe you have a power that is beyond anything I know to meet every single need that I have. Oh, can you see it? Oh my goodness. And as well as Jesus engaging her and demonstrating what faith looks like, his disciples will be looking on can you imagine the conversations later? <laughs> I'd have loved to be in a fly on the wall of Jesus unpacking that with his disciples. Like, did you, did you see that? Did you see the woman? That's what I'd like you to have. And he, they would have been ready to shuffle her, out, shuffle, shuffle her out the door. He's teaching his disciples as well, about, as well as the woman. How does he reply? I need to say, this passage has had me on my knees this week. Physically, I've been on my knees. And at times, I've just been crying as I read this, and God revealing the truth behind what is happening in this interaction. It is so at the heart of our faith. We come with nothing. We come with nothing. And we gain everything because of his great love and his great mercy. How does, she, how does he... Uh, one more. 
How does he reply to her? Now, I want you to imagine, before we read it out, just imagine Jesus. He's been tired. He, he was hiding away. He was exhausted. He didn't really want to engage with the women in a way. He's confronted with this woman. And he puts out this thing, you're not first pick. You're not first pick. We can't, we can't change things around that, that you have the first pick over the Jews. And she replies in this way. This is a good day for Jesus. This is, this is his bread and butter. This is what he loves. And he looks at her. And just imagine the tenderness and the connection, the eye contact for such a reply. Good answer is another version the message uses. Good answer. I don't remember the disciples ever having that said to them. But she understood it. Good answer. And in Matthew version it says, woman, you have great faith. For such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. For such a reply you know you can't earn it. You know you have nothing to uh, justify why you receive my blessing. But you know I am Lord. You know I'm Messiah. You know that I can meet your needs. You're desperate and you've come to me for meeting your needs. For such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Oh, oh it's exquisite. Absolutely exquisite. Can you just imagine the angels in heaven like, Somebody's finally understood it. Not these willfully stupid disciples and these Jews who are so blinded. This is amazing. Someone has got it. And she would have gone tearing off to her village. Can you imagine the conversation? Well, I, I, I went and found him. You did what? You went and found the Messiah. The teacher. Yeah, yeah, I sort of, um, sort of knocked on the door and sort of kind of made my way in. And I kind of refused to go until he blessed me, basically. Can you imagine her friends like, you said... You really? Like, did they not throw you out? Well, they tried to. <laughs> but I was persistent. I knew he was the one. And the audacious mercy and grace that would have been impacted on her community, because they would have known that her daughter was suffering and demon-possessed. The ripple effect on her community. She would have had to retell and retell. And then tell us again what he said. What he said for such a reply. I'm so good at asking Jesus to recount that story to me in heaven. So it's going to be like, I'm going to get up there, right? Tell me the story again, Jesus. Absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. The God of all universe who could judge her, the God of all universe who knew her background better than she did, had the right to judge her. But because of her tenacious faith, he met every single need of, that she had and blessed her with mercy. I reject the abundant mercy. Oh, that's not the one I need. Go back. So she received the abundant mercy of God because she wasn't trying to save herself. There was absolutely no pride left in her. Even saying, have mercy on me, that's a beggar's response that she first used with him. She had nothing left. She'd given up and left her self-respect at the bed of her daughter. She had to go. She had to meet him. He was the only one that could meet her needs. She'd given up trying to save herself. In exchange, she received the abundant mercy of God. But neither did she go the other way. 
You might find that you have pride that gets in the way of uh, your relationship with God, that you just feel quite, quite proud that, you know, you can do the 80%, you just need God to top you up for the 20. I'm, I'm all right, God, actually. But you might go the other way to say, actually, God, my life is such a mess and I am so broken, you are not big enough to meet my needs. Therefore, I won't come to you because I'm so ashamed. I can't even acknowledge my needs before you because you're not big enough. And that'd be slipping into this, more of this statement, which is, I reject the abundant mercy of God when I don't believe it's enough. Timothy Keller helpfully says, to have an inferiority complex, being so self-absorbed in what you say, that you say, I'm just so awful that God couldn't love me. That is also rejecting the offer of mercy and his offer of acceptance. But she didn't do that. Her tenacious, determined faith drove her to her knees before the only person that could save her and her daughter. For such a reply you may go. For such a reply. Have you known the abundant mercy of God? Have you known his deep love for you? And do you believe you can boldly approach God just as you are to meet all your needs and even to meet the needs of those closest to you? In this case, it was her daughter. Perhaps you've never come. Perhaps coming to church on a, on a Sunday is, is your moral top-up. That life is okay. That you can manage your own life. You have a regular wage. You have an all right car. You've got some reasonably close friends. Your family's doing all right. And you come to church just for that moral creme de la creme. I hope it's not. I hope Jesus is your all in all. And perhaps you've been trying to save yourself, but some of that rings true. Do you ever name drop? <laughs> Do you ever jangle your car keys? Just so people can see that you're driving, I don't know, Lamborghini or something. To be honest, if I drove a Lamborghini, I'd be like, <laughs> I'd be like revving it in the car park every Sunday. You'd be like, Catherine, put the Lamborghini away. I'm probably never going to own a Lamborghini. Sorry, I don't think that would be the car I'd choose. Sorry. Maybe I go more Aston Martin. Sorry. Sorry, I had a bit of a tangent there about fast cars. Sorry. So do we ever name drop? Do we ever jangle the car keys? I just use that as a token because, you know, I used to work in the city at one point, And oh my goodness, the tokens of wealth, the tokens of prestige that people would, would carry about their person, the phone, the shoes, the, the address of their city office. It was, it was so consuming. Maybe you follow the rules. Maybe you tick all the boxes and you, you sometimes just quite like to remind God of quite what he owes you. Because God, I have been very, very busy for you, so if you could just come through for me on this thing, I would really quite appreciate it. <laughs> Being quite prissy with God. Maybe you pretend you're okay, but everyone else seems to have it all together, but you feel a bit broken inside, so you don't fit in. The beautiful thing about this story is that she is totally totally received and she is totally redeemed he is the ultimate judge she, he knows everything about her and she becomes she's, she becomes she transfers from being a dog 
And she actually, because of her faith, we are all called, if we have faith, children of Abraham, in the line of Abraham. So she, through her faith, becomes a child in the line of Abraham. And later, Jesus on the cross, as we touch on that more next week, Jesus becomes the dog. Jesus becomes the dog, and he takes the, um, the rubbish, and he takes the shame, and he takes the brokenness, and he gets taken outside of the city gate and killed. He becomes the dog so that we can become the children. Isn't that beautiful? And it is absolutely freedom this morning. This is absolute freedom. You're not enough. Let me just say that again. You're not enough. You're never going to be enough. And I don't say that as a condemnation, like, you're not enough for me. You're not enough for God. I don't say it like that. I say, whoop, whoop, you're not enough. (laughs) God doesn't require you to be enough. So stop trying. Stop trying to strive your way to perfection. He doesn't need you to be perfect. Jesus is perfect. One particular example of how this truth may impact our families is that in less than 12 weeks we have a little known festival known as Christmas and Christmas can make you feel a bit deflated it's full of family politics it can be it can be full of family politics and tension money problems expectations unmet expectations and you might already be going under negotiations of whose Christmas who is hosting Christmas this year? For how long? Yeah, we all know it's happening. Imagine a Christmas full of people like ourselves, where we no longer need to justify ourselves, where we can have healthy boundaries with those we love, who sometimes lord it over us, or put heavy, weighty expectations on us. We can love that annoying family member with a genuine, patient love, because we know we are qualified by the King that he has given us his approval. Can you see, even just for Christmas, how knowing this a little bit more deeply could transform our Christmas? What our church look like? With a bit more confidence and boldness. Perhaps let's allow God to unleash the floodgates of his mercy into your hearts today. What would it look like for you just to loosen your grip just a bitty, just a little bit, on controlling how you are before God. Of just releasing to God a little bit more. I come a little bit more revealing who I am to you, Lord, today. Just releasing that to him a little bit more. What would that look like for you? He can meet all your needs. Back in the 16th century, Thomas Cramer, who who was later Bishop Cramer, He wrote this incredible prayer, which then was later incorporated into the Book of Common Prayer, which dates back from the 1660s, which is used even in churches today. And it's probably something you'll remember, and the words will be familiar. And it's taken from this passage. I'll read it to you as we close. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through the most precious blood 
and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. I encourage you just to take a moment and just bring before God something you may have been holding back and just be ready to receive his mercy for you this day.